welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast for the charity myelopathy.org. Where we talk all things cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Michelle Starkey, I'm a scientist and the director of myelopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and co-founder of myelopathy.org. Coming up today, we are talking all about the branding of myelopathy and how we refer to it. We talked to Arya Nuri, a researcher and neurosurgeon who has proposed a new name for myelopathy. And we talked to Tim Berger, a clinical researcher who suffers from myelopathy and was interested to find out whether people with myelopathy are happy to be called patients. This is Myelopathy Matters by myelopathy.org. So Michelle, item number three, third podcast. Are we starting to feel more comfortable in this uh, in this role? Yes, I think so. I'm all, I've always been very good at talking, so it was a natural thing. <laughs> a natural, natural transition to broadcasting. And I'm actually interested to hear this um, episode because um, recently we put together our new website. We had a lot of discussion about what we should refer to um, myelopathy as. Um, I think potentially we've picked the wrong acronym but that can be changed quite easily <laughs> mm. I, I mean I think it's been a major challenge for the whole field and I'm not entirely sure necessarily the the story's over um, but we're going to certainly hear to a couple of people who've been trying to push the thing along a little bit and, and come to some conclusions but we're getting there and I think you know unification uniting behind a single term will be really important for how we identify educate and ultimately research. Definitely. And I have a number of phone calls on a day-to-day basis talking about the charity. And I think it is quite ironic that today we're talking about names and the charity has such a difficult name to say, myelopathy. Uh, I mean, that's a problem, isn't it? You know, you want to have something which runs off the tongue. I mean, I think of close relatives, you know, multiple sclerosis, that is a mouthful, but they've now unified under MS, haven't they? Everyone identifies Mm. with the term MS. So there is probably some work to go in terms of coming up with something that can really be recognised, but um, well, I guess a work in progress. Yes. Yeah, it just makes me laugh because earlier today I was speaking to HMRC. We're doing um, some work to get the charity registered with them for gift aid, etc. And um, the person I was speaking to on the phone said to me, what is the name of your charity? And I said, well, it's myelopathy.org. And he said, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I had no idea. Did he leave the conversation better educated and aware? Exactly, yes. He didn't know what it was before. Now he does. <laughs> Good. That's important. The tax, yeah. men are, tax men know about myelopathy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we picked that name because obviously it's our website address and yeah. makes it much easier for people to find. But It does. And I think, you know, I was, th- I was thinking back about issues with naming. And I know when I first met Ewan, I thought he was called Iwan. Mm. It's I-W-A-N. And he didn't correct me for at least two years. Because he's really sweet. Because he's a nice chap, yeah. <laughs> and then he eventually goes, Ben, by the way, it's Ewan. <laughs> it's always difficult with those Welsh names, though, isn't it? It is. It is. <laughs> but I should know from all of the Welsh rugby players. But anyway, names are important, brands are important, and we're going to find out a little bit about um, what's happening and what's changing in, in myelopathy. 
So um, time to hear from our first interviewee, our first guest. Um, Dr. Arya Nuri is a leading researcher in uh, cervical myelopathy. He uh, did a master's with Dr. Failings in his uh, prestigious lab and group from Canada. And that's actually now training as a neurosurgeon in in Zurich, and he is the one that came up with the term degenerative cervical myelopathy, which is now being widely adopted as the new terminology. And we're going to hear exactly why he came to that conclusion. Um, he had some time for us when he came over to Cambridge. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Ari Nuri, who um, is a leading researcher in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, and more recently uh, a resident in a neurosurgical program in Geneva, who uh, joins me here today in, in Cambridge. So delighted to have you, Aria. How are you doing? Thank you, man. Pleasure. I thought we'd go a little bit about your relationship with myelopathy and, and, and then finish up with you with, with, with future directions. Um, sure. And of course, that relationship started, I understand, back in, in Canada when you uh, looked to start a master's with Dr. Failings. Yes. How did, that, how did that come about? After I finished medical school, I decided to continue on with some research. I looked at the University of Toronto and uh, eventually got accepted to the Institute of Medical Science. I, I looked for a mentor. Uh, in neurosurgery and I saw an opportunity to work with Dr. Failings. At that time, obviously, I didn't know much about uh, cervical myelopathy and how impactful it was. And uh, he enlightened me a little bit uh, of this, uh, uh, of the problem. And uh, we had a good chat and uh, eventually he uh, offered me to come in and I started the next week. We talked a little about this before, but I mean, what was the objectives of that thesis? What was the directions that your, your research was going in? Sure. Um, so the, what he had envisioned for me was to look at imaging that were obtained from a recently completed AOSpine North American study that was a multi-center prospective study to look at the efficacy and, the, and safety for surgical treatment of patients with the degenerative cervical myelopathy. And um, he specifically wanted me to do this project because I had a medical background, and he, I believed that to be uh, important in, uh, in the analysis of this data. It wasn't just a clinical epidemiology project, but it was really to um, get an idea of uh, what we could look at, understanding patient mm -hmm. population, understanding that uh, what the condition mm -hmm. and, and understanding how MRIs could be used to uh, maybe answer some of the diagnostic prognosis. And it's interesting because we, we did talk a little bit about this, but... You were sort of relatively fresh out of medical school, and I think we remarked both that you hadn't really heard of myelopathy at that point in time. I was exactly the same coming through medical school. There wasn't really much education on myelopathy in medical school. So what was it that resonated with you with the problem at that stage, not knowing much about it? What, what drew you in? Well, the more I looked into it, um, the more I realized that uh, it is quite impactful in terms of quality of life, and there seemed to be a lot of good to be done. Absolutely. Before you even embarked on the, um, the imaging project, you were, we were grappling very much with the terminology. Yeah. Um, perhaps you could talk us a little bit through this. Sure. When you start a master's or PhD, typically you meet with the committee and uh, you put forward a research proposal. And in this research proposal, I struggle quite a bit in, uh, in, um, in really defining what was uh, degenerative cervical myelopathy, or at the time, cervical spondylotic myelopathy, because in reviewing the literature, I, I really struggled to find good definitions of what the papers were discussing, what kind of patients they included, and with this struggle, I, I, I decided that perhaps it would be appropriate to add in the proposal uh, a section on etymology and perhaps propose new terminology that was simple 
what I found was common amongst all the papers that I looked at on the topic was that we were all talking about a degenerative process and they were all talking about spinal cord injury in, in a progressive manner, so myelopathy. And, and thus, for me, it was quite simple to just call it degenerative cervical myelopathy. Dr. Failings was very interested in it, and he, uh, he supported me in pursuing this. Sure. I mean, were there any other options in, on the cards when you were sort of thinking through that sort of terminology and how you're going to unify what had been a very, um, you know, people were using terms but in slightly different ways. It was making it very difficult yeah. to compare the literature, and, and still is, uh, because of that legacy. Yeah. Any other words sort of coming into the, into the equation? To be honest, I did not feel like it was possible to write a good synthesis on the subject with the current state that, that was presented to me, because, as you know, with a master's or a PhD, uh, it is necessary for one to defend what is written and I did not feel that um, with uh, the data that was out there, if I would have just written something um, uh, the way it was written, that I, I would feel comfortable in defending what I would be writing. And uh, I, th- I thought that outlining the problem under a new terminology and identifying the specific things that fall under this terminology and, and, and specifically addressing how things fit into place mm-hmm. correctly would be the only way to really address this. I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because it maybe doesn't necessarily feel so tangible to somebody affected by disease, whether the name is one thing or another. But I think it's absolutely clear from a science perspective that unless you have consistency about what you're talking about, it's impossible to compare between studies to interpret that research and mm-hmm. fundamentally change, change what we do in, in clinical practice. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I understand that you went back quite some way to try and get to the get to the bottom of, of, of some of the wording and, and as far back as the 1800s you were yeah. reading. Yeah, so I, um, it all started really with a, a search into what cervical spondylotic myelopathy was and, um, and it's, we can easily find a definition for myelopathy. We know the cervical spine is cervical, so what is left is spondylosis and when one searches what this means, uh, the, the definition, the standard definition is just a degenerative uh, or um, a, pro- a disease process of uh, of the vertebrae or vertebrae multiple vertebrae, and it's not really clear what that means. This could uh, this is really general, and um, when looking for what cervical spondylotic myelopathy means or what spondylosis means in this context, I could only find one paper that was published in 1995 by um, Francois et al. and uh, and where they where this team uh, that was composed of a committee uh, looked at various definitions on uh, disease processes related to rheumatoid uh, uh, and uh, arthritis, and um, and they they addressed spondylosis specifically, and they identified literature that went back to the 1800s that talked about um, something called spondylitis deformans, and uh, and uh, and they said that this is probably where the term came from, and that this term probably changed into uh, spondylosis deformance, and then just just spondylosis, and 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 uh, and that spondylitis and spondylosis were probably differentiated in terms of the inflammatory process uh, or infectious process, and and spondylosis being non not an infectious process, but. Um, it was probably uh, it was probably spo- that spondylosis was left behind 
in this in this in the specialization of terms that occurred afterwards uh, that no one really tried to identify what spondylosis was, whereas some people went on to say ankylosing spondylitis is specifically this with this criteria, mm -hmm. dish is this with this criteria. Um, no one really did that with uh, cervical spondylotic myelopathy. So it became a sort of residual catch-all. Yeah, exactly. And certainly an enormous mouthful. So I think you, you published your paper in about 2015, didn't you, which yeah, really right. contextualized this as a term. Mm -hmm. And I mean, how did you how did you find that? I mean, was there any sort of criticism from the reviewers on the idea that you were suddenly introducing the field to mm -hmm. something which had never really been used before? Yeah, so there was uh, there was quite a bit of pushback. Thinking about it, there was really two main things that were critiqued. One was that it seems like we're going into the opposite direction. If we're going to come up with a new term, it should be more specific to something specific. Shouldn't have make a new term that overlaps or is an umbrella term for. Uh, for a number of things. So the critique was the, the pushback on the fact that you were going less specialized, rather you're providing an overview term. Yeah, that was that was the that was the first one. But the the second thing that we uh, that we got was that basically why is this uh, necessary? Is there any need for uh, a new terminology when we have something that works and it seems clear to us as a reviewer that this this is this is what this means. We were eventually able to convince them that the umbrella term is necessary and we did this by arguing in the paper effectively that well if we look at the literature we know that there is variability between papers and ultimately I think that they accepted the paper not on the basis that this would be groundbreaking or anything like that. They simply accepted the paper because it was a well-written review. Interesting. And obviously that has been a very well-cited paper since. Yeah. And there is this legacy now with the guidelines that followed up in 2017 of, of adopting this term, which I think speaks to... Um, the fact that that issue resonates with the wider community. Mm -hmm. It's a slightly ironic, isn't it? But the fact that this disease is so poorly recognized mm -hmm. means actually the transition to a newer terminology perhaps isn't so difficult because people aren't, aren't using the old one anyway. Um, but I think the second thing which really shines through in some of your follow-up work with that MRI series is that whilst you've unified the disease in, in its bigger term, mm -hmm. you are starting to try and pick away at the subgroups um, mm -hmm. because clearly this is a spectrum of different types of pathology, different types of impact. And although we have an umbrella term now, there is probably a lot to be said to way, how we categorise and to subgroup these, these, these groups of patients. Yeah, this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is exactly true. I, I think the best way to define uh, patients... Uh, with uh, degenerative cervical myelopathies is to acknowledge that there is a list of signs and symptoms, there's a list of degenerative changes that occur in the cervical spine, and that any given patient has a different constellation of these findings present. Uh, some will have the same because, sure, that is possible. Um, you know, there will be some patterns that will be the same, but there's usually a variety of various things present and in order to really um, understand um, specific processes that occur um, such as um, patients for instance that have predominant disc disease whereas patient, other patients have predominant uh, ligamentous disease such mm -hmm. as ossification of the posterior long ligament it is necessary to individualize these indiv people and and to see what common risk factors they have and 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 this is this is I think ultimately key in in the treatment approach because um, no 
two patients with myelopathy have the same background, no two patients present the same way. So that was Aria Nuri. Um, I mean, one of the things that uh, I find interesting about Aria more than anything, it's possibly a slight envious thing, is his name is very distinctive and his his name is not shared by anyone else. You put Ben Davies into Google, into, into PubMed, etc. thousands of people come out. I'm being shared and fighting for space with many other people, but Aria Nuri cuts through it. And I think um, that's what he's been trying to do with coming up with this, this new term, degenerative cervical myelopathy. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, really, that it's taken this long to come up with a term. Why do you think that is? I don't know. It's a very good question. I mean, it's it certainly, I mean, from the work he he's shown is that people have raised the question before, um, but there is no shared identifier. There's lots of different words in use. There's no coding in, in sort of in medical settings for, for this disease. I, I can't really, can't really explain it. Why, why has no one got to the bottom of it? Perhaps they didn't recognize that it was a problem. They were happy going along. I mean, I think it speaks in general to, to a slightly, you know, relatively less research in this sector anyway. And what were what are the different terms that you use? So there's, there's cervical spondylitic myelopathy. myelopathy. Yeah, all the same thing. Yeah, yeah. C- uh, cervical stenosis, cervical stenosis with myelopathy, cervical myelopathy stenosis, um, various things around that. Um, there is a slight distinction also with a condition called as ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, which can cause a compressive myelopathy in the neck. And some found distinct to CSM. Some found it was included. And I mean, I think. You know, it's it's difficult perhaps to appreciate what the impact of this has been. But if you look at the science that's been done so far, everyone's using different definitions. So it's really difficult to understand, you know, is that study looking at the same patient group as that study? How do you identify and merge those results? How do you interpret them? How do you transfer them back into clinical practice? And I think, you know, when you talk to professionals who, you know, we're trying to educate and increase awareness, if they keep hearing different terms, different words, it's much more difficult for them to pick up on, on what this is and understand what they need to do with it. But also it's the people that are walking out with a diagnosis that is potentially a whole jumble of different words to yeah. the next person that's got the same thing. And then they go to Google and try and look up what they have and, and it all becomes very confusing. Well, I think that's right. And I think before we had myelopathy.org, if you put this into Google, you came up with canine myelopathy, which there is a form of compressive myelopathy quite common in dogs. And all the information was around vets advertising various treatments or, or what happens in dogs. And there was nothing really for people with, with myelopathy. So I think you're right. Having that identity, which is consistent, will help people find the information they need. And also DCM, degenerative cervical myelopathy, sort of describes what it is, right? Which is makes it even more, it's more logical in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was very much Aria's, um, conclusion. That's why he, why he chose that. I know that I speak to other professionals. The term degenerative, I think, it's also got some negative connotations. People feel it like it's you know wear and tear and breaking down and getting old, and um, perhaps that doesn't sort of suit everybody. But I think it's it certainly does speak exactly what what this process is driving the myelopathy. Yeah. Mm, and our website refers to it as CSM at the oh, moment. It does. So yeah, we, need we to, are lost. We're behind the times. We are. We need to make some changes. Yeah, we do. So um, now we're going to chat to Tim Berger. He's someone with cervical myelopathy. He's based in Wisconsin in the USA. Uh, Tim's a PhD student at Marquette University looking at how movement changes in myelopathy. But he's been working on something else for myelopathy.org. 
Are people with DCM happy being called patients? Yeah, and I think it turns out quite an important question, Tim. It's an important question, not just in the realm of cervical myelopathy. We might get into this a little bit later, a little bit more in depth, but it's it's an important question, broadly speaking, within the medical community. And uh, as you start talking to individuals with a variety of neurological or otherwise medical conditions, what kind of uh, language do they want to be referred to? Mileage appears to vary from from one condition to another, and there's maybe a few factors that go into that. But uh, that makes it an interesting and important discussion to have with people that have any diagnosis, given the context of how little we know about cervical myelopathy. It's it's important to have that discussion in this realm as well. So, what led you to do that or start that process in in myelopathy? Personally, uh, it's it's interesting since we, since we were talking about uh, me being a PhD student at least here in the States, one of the milestones that you have to get through in terms of getting a PhD is you have to submit a research proposal. So as I'm writing up this you know, 12-page document proposing what I'm going to do for my dissertation, you know, the word patient's all throughout there just because it's you know, historically fairly second nature to just conceptualize it as, as patients. So I was just doing that, just not, just not even thinking about it. And my advisor comes back and says, no, you have to change this. This, this, is not, like, this is not appropriate language anymore. You have to change it to people with cervical myelopathy, individuals with cervical myelopathy, you know, something like that. And I'd, I'd make the changes where, where I noticed them. And I'd, send, I'd you know, send the next copy back to her. And she found another location. And she sent it back to me and said, no, you need to change these. I like, oh, good grief. So eventually I just did like the find all, replace all like patients with individuals. <laughs> Why was she so convinced that that was the, that was needed? Well, there's a couple reasons. One of which is the, the opinion in the broader uh, scientific biomedical community that in first language is important in order to uh, emphasize the humanity and individuality of the people that you're doing research on. And there's, there's a shift from talking about people that are involved in research. Historically, we've just referred to them as research subjects, but there's also a shift in talking about people volunteering for research studies as participants and talking about people with a given condition or individuals with a given condition, talking about them more from their individuality rather than their subjects and patients, et cetera. But on top of that, especially in the context of my research study, all of the participants I have in my, in my study are people with cervical myelopathy who have already had surgery. So the individuals may very well not technically be a patient anymore with cervical myelopathy. That is, they're not receiving medical care in, in any substantial regard. Uh, for example, I have one participant who's 13 years post surgery for cervical myelopathy, this individual is probably not, you know, going back, you know, every three months to get follow-up x-rays or something like that. If, if they have symptoms, maybe they show up, maybe they did, you know. I had this exact issue when I was working in the spinal injury center in Zurich. So we had patients with spinal injuries. I was working with um, 
uh, tetraplegic patients who are in the hospital for about six months. And then it's appropriate whilst they're in the hospital that you're calling them a patient because they are and they're receiving um, care. But we went on working with them up to a year post-surgery and then afterwards, uh, post-injury, I should say. And then, you know, they started saying to us, but I'm no longer a patient you know this is my life now I'm living with um, this spinal injury I'm a person that has a spinal injury and it really shifted the way I thought about it as well because I use patients and everything yeah I've, I've got several patients on this study and and like you say it's just it's not appropriate anymore they're people I mean I think it's I mean unfortunately you haven't had to be treated before so it's not something that's never been on my radar but when I hear more and I hear those sorts of sides from Tim and you are those perspectives it I can I can really see that being a being an important area. So going back to where you're where you've been coming from, Tim, your experience was that your supervisor was pointing you towards person first language based on a broader understanding of person first language in terms of both healthcare and medical research these days. And obviously the relevance in your instance and in your study to the fact that people were a long time out from surgery and perhaps therefore not consider themselves as, as patients. So what happened next? What where where you went with this to try and confirm that actually in myelopathy, people wanted to move away from patient and towards person first language there was a discussion on the on the uh, recode in, in terms of the the recode dcm project one of the neurosurgeons suggested that it might be prudent to move away from the term patients as well so he suggested that we we the people with cervical myelopathy come up with with a term um, to use in, in our in our recode dcm documents Hopefully, in a in an in an ideal world, uh, you get the surgery and it, it abuts the degenerative process and it abuts the damage to the spinal cord, um, and whatever recovery that is attainable is attained, and you get discharged from from surgery and you just go about living your life. And during that time, you're you're not a patient, but you're then living with the after effects of of having that spinal cord compression. There's, there's a lot less known about what, what happens after, after surgery and how these individuals go about living their lives. I think one of the, the powerful things for me was that this was a, a problem identified by, by yourself, really, um, somebody with myelopathy, and, and, a, and, a, and a conclusion was really drawn by a, a canvassing opinions amongst people with myelopathy. So it was really a, a problem identified by the people it affects and solved by the people it affects. And I... And I I was really struck by that initiative, and I and I hope it's something that we can really promote its adoption going forward with the rest of Recode. Um, I mean, one of the other things that came out of it, um, which you're also alluding to in what you're saying, is that uh, you dropped the term degenerative. You speak just of people with cervical myelopathy. I can't speak for everyone, um, but I really don't like it. I don't, personally, I don't really care for the term. It's it's too long. That's that's a bit of my opinion, but. By the time you get done saying degenerative cervical myelopathy, you need a glass of water. <laughs> like this is just, you think about the, the medical conditions that everybody knows about. There's a nice concise term for it, right? The stroke, even spinal cord injury, uh, multiple sclerosis. It's substantially fewer syllables than degenerative cervical myelopathy. The, the textbooks I have, you know, from the orthopedics world that talk about cervical myelopathy, don't say cervical spondylotic myelopathy, they don't say degenerative cervical myelopathy, that that wasn't a term when those textbooks were written. They just say cervical myelopathy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the key, isn't it? It's the recognition. And I think it's interesting to see see how we transition forward with this, whether that is 
that is going to be sufficiently unique and and I think it probably will be I mean I think certainly people I speak to non-surgeons speak cervical myelopathy anyway I think um time is ticking probably my phone bill on this call to uh, America is is exponentially increasing thanks very much for updating us on people with cervical myelopathy which I'm certainly going to incorporate in what I'm doing and uh, and we'll see see how that goes quite interesting i mean those kind of things that you knew about or no um but like i said to tim it's something that i had considered um with spinal cord injured people mm. as well mm. so it makes sense you know as soon as people leave the hospital yeah. they're no longer patients and you know we need to refer to them in yeah. a way that they feel comfortable with and one of the things i felt interesting was that these were two guys who were doing research projects phd projects both starting out and sort of grappling with the inconsistency of the terminology and, 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 and how they should describe it. And they went off in slightly different directions with the, trying to unify things, but, but both interesting approaches. But it's probably only at that point that you realise the discrepancies yeah. here when you start to try and look at, you know, the broad, more broader yeah. sort of research field in that area. Or if you're diagnosed and you want to go and find out more about it, yeah. it's only at that point that you realise, hang on a second, there's loads of different names there. It's really even more confusing than already. And they're both fearful of defending the term in their in their, in their projects, weren't they? Mm, it's um, But, th- you know, that's a PhD. You've got to defend why you think the way you do. Yeah. Um, so you've got to make sure that you're really sure about that before you go in. Mm. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and I think something we're going to have to start suggesting on the website. Definitely. Got some work to do. Got some work to do. Okay, so now it would be nice to hear some updates from myelopathy.org. Ben, what have you got to tell us? Well, um, Bits of progress. We had some more conversations with the Institute of Osteopathy, uh, referred to as IO, um, put in touch with um, their lead for continuing professional development, who has been very helpful, actually. And they've just done a, a large piece of work with um, another condition called ankylosing spondylitis, which has similar challenges in terms of picking up the diagnosis and, and, and how that impacts on treatment and outcomes. And they've done a, a large piece of work with a partner charity in, in that sector. And they thought there was a great opportunity for, for myelopathy.org. And the couple of proposals from their side were um, were about to feature in their census to get a little bit of ex- exposure to, you know, how much myelopathy osteopaths see. So that would be some interesting data to see and inform things going forward. They've invited us to pitch to be part of their um, national conference, which will be a, a sort of symposium pitch, an opportunity to sort of uh, explain what is myelopathy, you know, how it should be managed, all those kind of kind of questions and make sure that community is well, well aware um, and in the same sort of guise, they've got a, a monthly journal and, and we can produce some content for that journal, sort of continuing professional development. I think that's that's exciting because that's content that we can use again for other professional fields. And the experience from the community is that, that they do see osteopaths and, and that they are part of detecting myelopathy. And I think that's um, something we can really plug into. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, the running theme through all of this is raising awareness. And this is just another route of doing that with a different group of professionals and, Mm. um, you know, people that might see someone who has myelopathy and might be able to refer them on. And I think one of the interesting things they did with um, ankylosing spondylitis, they were saying, is that they they worked with the uh, AS charity and, and, and on the osteopaths to work out 
a performer so that if an osteopath saw somebody with the condition, they suspected it, there was a template to complete, they could send them back to their GP with to know exactly what to do. And I think that's something we could really mirror and benefit from in, in, in myelopathy. We hear that through the support group, right, that they present to a GP, the GP has no idea what it is. So I think if you had something like that to say, okay, the osteopath suspects it's this, it would yeah. just speed up that I process. I think so, because they're looking yeah. for a bit of help, you know, they're not... GPs are a gateway to lots of different diseases. They cannot be experts on absolutely everything. And I think that helpful bit of information could potentially make a difference there. Sounds great. Keep us updated. Um, and the other thing um, on the sort of university side with the University of Cambridge and, and also nationally with myelopathy.org, we're um, part of a big consortium looking at a, a new trial application, um, a research trial in the UK. And that's proceeded through the first stage um, saying they're interested uh, we now need to put a second stage application in, and that's um, going to be around looking at two different types of operation for people who have myelopathy at multiple levels of their spine. Okay. Um, that's a big opportunity to run a big international study and really get to the heart of a question which hasn't really been answered so far. There's a lot of work on treating myelopathy at a single level, but when you start to treat myelopathy at multiple levels of the spine, there are potentially implications to the stability of the spine, and it's unclear whether that has an impact on on someone's, uh, someone's function. Um, and therefore the question mark is always around whether they should have stabilization, things like metal work and all these kind of things, which have major costs and perhaps some additional implications. And the, the trial will be really understanding whether that is necessary or not. Wow. That sounds amazing. I'd be really, I hope so. And I think, you know, you, Ewan's involved in giving some expertise from, from some lived experience sides. And I think Hopefully we can progress that. But I think one of the big things that's always an opportunity when you put trials together is just that ability to bring a massive network of people together. That's a platform you can really do lots of different things with. Mm, and as we know, these things take a long time, but oh, you've do. got to start somewhere. And yeah, sounds great. Brilliant. And I think finally, there's still a bit more bit more coming with the offline groups. Is that right? Yep. We've heard from Brad Barker. I think we've mentioned him before in one of our podcasts. He's very keen to do the to do this, uh, the first offline group, I think in Cambridge. Um, he's got experience with doing these types of things before. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing how that first one goes. We hope that people come along. Um, and I, I would like to attend as well to meet some of these people. Um, so yeah, we're, we're quite yeah, positive. Yes, so I think if you're interested, get in touch and we can connect you with Brad. It's going to be somewhere in the Cambridgeshire region. Uh, I think he's got about seven or eight people interested. They're working out dates and things. And um, we look forward to sort of seeing how that went, got on and, and what the impact of that was. But I mean, certainly my limited experience is, is connecting people face to face is, is, is very powerful. So uh, hopefully that is something that is positive. And do we have a potential date or Not, idea? No, I don't mind? think so. Okay. I think they're still, they're still sort of working out what's, what's convenient in venues and all that kind of thing. But um, it sounded very much in, 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 in you know, well, well underway in the planning and, and looking like it's going to happen soon. It's really exciting. That's great. Great. So what's up next month? Uh, we're going to be putting the spotlight on the charity on myelopathy.org itself. Um, and we're going to hear from the trustees with questions that people have set for them um, all about their roles and, and why they got involved. So I think that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how uh, to show, showcase really how everything fits together. And we're also starting to turn our attention more and more to fundraising. And we've set that date of May the 4th based on Ewan's uh, Spine Wars um, merchandise. And um, we're looking forward to that. So thanks very much to Ari Nuri for his time and also Tim Berger. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. 
If you've got a question about myelopathy, we would love to get it answered on the podcast. Please get in touch with us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash myelopathy. That's also where you'll find a link to join our support group if you're interested. And of course, you can always email us at info at myelopathy.org. And there's lots more information and support to be found at myelopathy.org, the website itself. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next month. So why not subscribe on your favorite podcast apps so that you don't miss episodes. Until then, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.